The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. Hello, listeners around the world on radio, streaming, and podcast services. This is It's Not Therapy. I'm Leanna Kersner, and I am not a therapist, but I am your source for navigating the madness of mental health using my top 10 sayings for checking in with your best self. This episode, we're talking about why smart people do dumb things. We all know someone who is a genius at a given subject, but makes absolutely terrible decisions in their personal lives. Or you might know someone who's very smart in one area, but makes zero sense in another. Say, a billionaire who's good at marketing electric cars, but then he decides to buy a social media site and couldn't admit he had no idea what he was doing. Smart people doing dumb things often comes down to poor assumptions, hubris, or both. Being smart is about knowing a lot of things. Being wise is about knowing what you don't know. But how do you know what you don't know? Well, that takes a lifetime to master, if you're lucky. Ethics, philosophy, and formal logic are not easy things to get your head around. And so many people think complex problems have simple solutions. Hopefully this show will help you embrace complexity. Tonight's guest is Dr. Jeff Nevid, author of the Minute Therapist blog on psychology today. Jeff will be here to talk to us about how smart people, how successful people go wrong in their self-talk. And I'm having Jeff on to help us not talk ourselves into terrible ideas because that's the core of that, you know, poor assumptions, hubris are both variable, right? Smart people talk themselves into thinking dumb things are smart. Now, I don't want to be reductive, even though I just kind of was. There are millions of separate reasons smart people do dumb things, but I'm talking about the structure, why smart people do dumb things, not the dumb things smart people do. Very smart people tend to neglect their emotional selves, and that leads to the dumbness, right? And that's not something that they chose to do. That's often something that comes down to their formative years, self-concept, sense of identity, so on and so forth. Basically, smart people can't admit they did a stupid thing because smart people are supposed to be smart. So instead of correcting for the mistake, they double down on the mistake. And this is what I mean when I say top 10 phrase, don't let problems that aren't your fault lead to mistakes that are. Now, if anything here inspires a question, comment, or suggestion, I expect this will hit some nerves. Go to nottherapyshow.com, nottherapyshow.com, fill out the contact form, or join our mailing list while you're there, or Not Therapy Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads, Not Therapy Show. I'm quite liking the chill vibe on Threads. Now, I love to reference Dungeons and Dragons on this topic of why smart people do dumb things. Because Dungeons and Dragons, as a game system, treats intelligence and wisdom as two separate abilities. Intelligence is the key stat for mages, and mages specialize in offensive and illusory spells. Fireball, magic missile, you know, all that good stuff. But wisdom is the primary stat for clerics, and clerics specialize in healing, among other things. But healers 
are often really unsatisfying to play in fantasy role-playing games because a lot of game system and game masters don't reward experience points for anything but combat. So how can you build a character with a high wisdom score and end up with a satisfying play experience? Often you don't, but enough about my D&D grumblings. Wisdom is similarly undervalued in life. It's hard to build a game system for wisdom because to the unwise, wisdom seems, well, like foolishness. Whether we have good judgment is often judged by those with poor judgment. It's completely subjective. And that results in absolutely fallacious arguments like the idea that being rich or successful in business proves someone is intelligent. In fact, the most common factor in whether someone is rich is whether their parents were rich. And many less than genius people run successful businesses because they were able to assemble the right people to backstop their own limitations. But the thing about intelligence is that we think it's measurable. We have a score for IQ, we test it. And okay, it's debatable how accurate IQ tests really are, but we still have them. Wisdom, measuring that is a lot harder. Insecure people love to tear down those of us who are content with enough. They call us losers, has-beens, washed up, and my favorite, past our prime. And that's seen by too many others. That name-calling is seen as strength and leadership. And it's not. The ability to look at your life and say, you know what, this is pretty good. That is the pinnacle of success, real success. But that ability can't be measured by anybody but you. And that ability rarely impresses the masses because most people don't get there. So you get people like Elon Musk and Donald Trump who have a great deal of career success, but clearly aren't happy or even emotionally regulated. <laughs> what is going on? So this is the beginning of a series of shows about why smart people do dumb things. We're going to explore things like self-talk and expectations, assumptions, self-concept and imposter syndrome, and intellectualizing emotions. And all this is an attempt to show that being smart isn't the only way to be useful or successful. As I talked about with Jason Bradshaw a few weeks ago, we live in an achievement success culture where the grade or score is more important than what we learned. It feels good to be right, but some people make that their identity to the point that they can't admit they're wrong. Now, some of this is trauma. We'll get to that in future. But some of it is the belief that being smart is the only thing a person has going for them. And if they're not smart, they're nothing. So they have to be smart all the time. They try to be perfect in the smarts department. And you know what I say about perfect. Top 10 phrase, stop trying to be perfect. Perfect's a lie. It takes some work to realize that there's an in-between between being right all the time and being nothing. That sounds like madness, but I work with so many people who set 
one bar for the rest of the world and then an impossible much higher bar for themselves. And right there is a smart person doing something that doesn't make any sense. If one of your first principles is equality, then equality applies to you. And if your standard for yourself is so much higher than everybody else, well, aren't you putting in way more work to get far fewer rewards than anyone else? How is that fair? To put it another way, let's go back to my golden rule thinking. That it's not about doing things for others that you'd want done for you. It's about not doing things to other people that you can't stand. Here's an example. I like knowing things, says the person following the golden rule. Therefore, I'm going to share information with others to make them smarter. Now that thought, share information with others because I like knowing things, risks leading you into behaviors where people think you're an obnoxious know-it-all. You're offering unsolicited advice and people don't care. Now let's flip the same concept on its ear into... I can't stand it when people won't stop trying to force information on me when I'm just not interested. So I'm going to ask people if they want to hear about something before I info dump on them. See how it's the same basic principle, how and when to share information, but the framing leads to very different outcomes. That's what I mean about the structure of why smart people do dumb things. Smart people can do dumb things when they let their ego, well, if I want this, everyone must want it, overpower their good sense. Because that ego gives them blind spots and they miss obvious things right at the beginning of their reasoning. And that's a primer for our interview after the break. Stay tuned for Dr. Jeff Nevin, author of The Minute Therapist on Psychology Today. We're going to be talking self-talk for smart people. Now, if anything inspires a question, comment, or suggestion, email me, Leanna at Not Therapy Show, or go to nottherapyshow.com, fill out the contact form, join our mailing list while you're there, or Not Therapy Show at Not Therapy Show, two T's, Not Therapy Show, three words on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We'll be back with Dr. Jeff Nevin after the break. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on It's Not Therapy talking why smart people do dumb things. And it's time for the interview. This interview, I've got Dr. Jeff Nevitt. He is the author of the Minute Therapist blog on psychology today. And Jeff is here to talk to us about self-talk. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. tonight. Thanks. Okay. So self-talk, you wrote an article on self-talk. And you talked about why it's important to do it properly now what does taking charge of your inner voice mean well first of all uh self-talk we all do it even though we may not be willing to admit that we do it mm-hmm. uh we do it's it's part of our nature as thinking animals uh, we have dialogues with ourselves under our breath uh in fact uh i found a quote from plato some 2500 years ago that's 
where she spoke about the fact that when people think, they think in words that they express to themselves in silent speech. Uh, so it's long been recognized as part of our nature. Uh, and I think we should just join the dialogue. But uh, in doing so, we should be able to recognize whether our own thoughts expressed in terms of inner speech uh, represents a, a friend or a foe, something that's helping us to cope or something that stands in the way. And a lot of people learn, well, the fancy word is maladaptive behaviors and self-talk, right? You have a part in your article where you talk about questioning uh, thoughts. You say, you know, right. challenging negative thoughts, uh, but challenging thoughts in general, right? Like who says is, is when, you know, who says this must be so is, is one of the things you say, which, you know, going back to the Greek philosophers, there's a lot of it in there, Um and I, I find that a lot of the assumptions that very intelligent people make start in their self-talk. They don't recognize the assumptions for what they are. Yeah, uh, catastrophizing is a huge assumption, right? Oh, things are never going to go my way. Right. How do people start catching and reframing those cognitive distortions? Well, there you go. You know, you put your finger on it. Yeah. You know, we have these dialogues with ourselves, but we don't generally, we're not generally reflective about them. We don't step back and ask ourselves what's what's running through our mind. We just assume that uh, what we're thinking about mirrors reality. And I think it's always important to recognize, uh, as philosophers recognize, that beliefs are merely opinions. They're not facts. Mm -hmm. We treat them as facts. When we treat them as facts, we don't inspect them, we don't evaluate them, we don't question them. So as a cognitive behavior therapist, what we try to do is identify these triggering thoughts that bring about emotional distress in the form of depression, anxiety, anger, guilt, and so on. Uh, we ask people to stop themselves in the act of thinking negatively, to step back to first of all, identify those negative thoughts and then go through, as you saw, there's a series of questions that we often use in therapy uh, to help people and guide them through this kind of process of self-reflection so that they can begin substituting coping thoughts for catastrophic negative thoughts and the like. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there is the different type and you you see this a lot in the tech sector places like that of very smart people who get this self-concept i have an iq of 155 i am smart and so they miss when they're wrong and that's a form of you know this is a form of negative thinking that doesn't seem negative in the first place if you get a client like that how do you help them retrain their thinking so that they can actually admit that they might be making a mistake. Yeah, good point. Let me just uh, identify some of the questions we ask people to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. Is it necessarily so, or does it just seem that way? What thoughts can I substitute for these negative thoughts? Who's, this is especially important in the work that we do in therapy, whose voice does it sound like? And Whose words are these? Who says, I must think this way? Why not some other way? And so we invite people into a process in which they examine their thinking, 
evaluate it almost as a scientist would. Uh, is there a factual basis to it? Is, or is it exaggerated or distorted in some way? And then to substitute uh, more adaptive coping thoughts in their place. We can't control thoughts. And this is an important point. Uh, we can't control the thoughts that pop into our head. Mm -hmm. It's like trying not to feel anxious. If I told you, if you're anxious and I told you, stop feeling anxious. Right, <laughs> right. Now, yeah. You know, you know, it's it's not something we can directly control. We can only control how we respond to our own thoughts or respond to our own emotions. That's where the control lies. And so when we have a negative thought, uh, it's bouncing around in the head. We have to take stock of it. We have to step back. We have to ask ourselves, you know, is there another way of thinking about it? Uh, why do I keep repeating this same negative thought to myself where does it come from whose voice does it sound like whose words does it sound like uh, so that's part of the process that we use yeah now there's an entire i hate to say self-help industry geared at especially men that bombard people via videos or books with thoughts that are are quite you know disapproving father right nobody cares about you the world doesn't doesn't care you have to be strong you have to take what you want and i mean every time i hear it i'm like dear god this sounds like you know the stereotypical abusive father on the outside instead of the inside of these poor guys heads i'm sure you get some people through your practice that have been indoctrinated is the only word by this kind of thinking oh, how absolutely. yeah how do you begin the process of uh, retraining that because that can be in, an incredibly painful thing to dismantle. It is, and uh, but it is such a key part of the therapeutic process. It's mm -hmm. it's about it's about identifying these triggering thoughts. What is it that? What are the thoughts that are setting setting off these uh, these emotional flares? And then it's better understanding the the history of those thoughts. You weren't born with them. Mm -hmm. That somewhere along the line, somebody, in effect, planted those thoughts in your head. And, after, and probably because you were quite young at the time, you didn't question them, especially if you're young and, and you and you heard criticism from parental figures, from you know, big people in your life. You, you, you didn't question it because young people, kids, don't question what, mm -hmm. what they hear from elders because they assume that they're hearing something that's true. Mm -hmm. And that then becomes ingrained. It becomes part of the, I call it the brain code. It, it's part of your internal programming. And once that's set into motion, it, it, it's like a, the old broken record that repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And I, I see this. I see this in 65-year-old men, women. Mm. I, I see them still thinking those same negative thoughts that they've been thinking since they were seven or eight years old. And... Uh, maybe finally they're coming to terms with it. Uh, it's not easy. It's not like you flip a switch. I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. uh, but it is part of a process, but you identify the thought, you you try to trace its history. How did that thought come to be? I mean, you weren't born that way, somewhere along the line. We try to go back in time to understand the origins of the thought. But as you know, I try to get across on this blog for psychology today, uh, the minute therapist, change can only happen in the present that's why it's called the minute therapist okay at all 
because clearly, uh, maybe it goes without saying that the past is dead, and and nobody uh, and nobody knows what the future holds. And we can't make changes in the future. We can only make changes here in the present. Uh, or as another way of putting that, I'd say, is that tomorrow never comes, right? If you think mm-hmm. about it, tomorrow never comes. So what we're, we're, we try to examine what's happening here in the moment and, and then to begin to make those changes in the here and now. Now, I, I find that sometimes people have a really hard time stopping those you know, real beat yourself up thoughts like get up, don't be weak, because they're covering up something that the person finds even worse. So when that's taken away, there's sort of a collapse that happens because they finally have to face the thing they're they're avoiding. Right. That's tough. How do you recommend people face that? Because that's terrifying. Well, it's, you're saying it's a kind of defense or a yeah, kind of sp- yeah. smoke screen. And there is deep hurt. And um, we have to come to terms with that. We have to process it. Uh, but we have to get past all this, this garbage that's in a person's head. And to do that, like you do every day, you take out the garbage. Uh, so in effect, what I'm asking them to do mm-hmm. is take out their mental garbage. And then we'll see what else is there. Now, for very, very intelligent people, uh, intellectualizing and and understanding one's thoughts can be very, very useful in taking out that garbage. But very intelligent people are also very good at avoiding their emotions through intellectualizing and having them stop and actually feel their feelings can go against their identity. And of course, you get a very, very strong reaction when somebody feels an identity threat. So how do you begin that process? Well, I, I'll give you a, a case example. I'll, I'll change the facts, but mm-hmm. I'm working with this man who is very, very successful financially mm-hmm. and, is now, and is retired and is able to retire at a young age. And uh, so he's enjoying his life. He's now playing, he's playing tennis now, uh, but he's taking that competitiveness with him onto the court in such a way that he's making himself miserable because mm-hmm. everything now is still a test of his self-worth. He's mm-hmm. got to prove that, that he could beat his opponent and, and beat, beat his opponent into the ground even uh, mm-hmm. for him to feel secure in himself. And you could see how much wasted mental energy there is to that, uh, there's it, it, it's a form of performance anxiety that, that enters the picture. I, I call it the in his case the thinking man's disease. Mm-hmm. It's when you evaluate your own performance, when you are so obsessed with how well you're doing something rather than just doing it, uh, you get in your own way basically. Yeah, because if you don't have that internal validation, no amount of external validation is enough. We see that in a lot of these tech billionaires who are clearly very unhappy, self-destructive people, because unfortunately, the world gives us this myth that if you go out and achieve, you'll be happy. But that's not so because then imposter syndrome kicks in and it's never enough. It, you know, that next thing is what's going to make me happy. That next thing is going to make me happy. So what do you do with someone who that competitive drive has, he perceives been, you know, the reason he's been so successful, but that can make you very successful in one sector of your life and 
but it's really destructive in say personal relationships or maintaining friendships or so on and so forth. How do you, how do you reframe, especially for men, because emotions are, are, are difficult when society punishes a lot of men for having those more vulnerable emotions and it prizes intellect, you know, get a college degree, get a white collar job. How do you begin pivoting to a more balanced intellect, emotional paradigm without, you know, risking complete collapse? Well, it is about reframing. Mm -hmm. It is about approaching things with a new mindset. And it, it's it's about leaving the, those that old mindset, you know, at the office door. Uh, and it, it, I'm working with this man in particular, and, and it, it's it's focused on that effort to try to see that he doesn't have to play that game anymore. Yeah. Uh, that he doesn't have to value himself based on the score, uh, and to begin to challenge and question that way of thinking. Uh, he can't control. We can't eliminate it by just wishing it away. Mm -hmm. We can better understand it, but at the end of the day, what we have to be able to do is to respond differently to it. Okay, I'm having those thoughts again. I know I'm, I'm driving myself crazy with this. Step back from it. Take a deep breath. Go onto the court and just bat around the ball. And nothing terrible is going to happen. I don't have to prove anything. So it's a matter of reprogramming your self-talk in effect so that it's working for you rather than against you now that i don't have to prove anything that's a tough one because you know we live in a productivity obsessed culture jeff hold on we got to take a break dr jeff nevin uh, author of the minute therapist on psychology today talking to us about self-talk why smart successful people can talk themselves into some not great things Jeff will be back with us for more after the break. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, email me, Leanna at nottherapyshow.com or go to the website, nottherapyshow.com or Twitter, Instagram threads, nottherapyshow. We'll be back talking why smart people. The following program is a peer-to-peer -peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on It's Not Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kirsner. I'm still not a therapist. I'm still talking to Dr. Jeff Nevid, the Minute Therapist on Psychology Today, the Minute Therapist blog. And we're talking self-talk and why very successful people can have some trouble with their inner thoughts, their inner voice, how they talk to themselves. Now, before the break, we were talking about achievement culture. We, we give lip service to you have value just because you're a human being, but we really don't practice what we preach collectively. So, and, and that's really tough. The idea of, well, if I just go and bat about the ball, I'm not being productive. I'm not accomplishing anything, but that's not true. That's where the emotional processing happens, right? You have a task you can focus on. And so you can take out the mental garbage, right? That's what, that's what just doing things for the sake of doing them does. Exactly. And yeah. I would say, you know, uh, you could change not only what you say to yourself, but what you say to others in the situation. You could go into onto the court and you could say to whomever you're playing, you say, I'm going to make you feel really, really good about yourself. You could <laughs> see the end of this game, 
you're going to feel terrific about how you perform. So the so the emphasis you, you you take the monkey off your back, right? Uh, and you and and you diffuse that that pressure. I wrote another piece uh, a while back for Psych Today about uh, applying what we could call the good enough standard. And that is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people who are in competitive industries. But we have, at the end of the day, we have to come to terms with the fact we can only be the best version of ourselves. We can only do the best we can under the circumstances. We can't determine outcomes. We can only determine effort. And if you apply that standard, I've done, it's good enough. It's good enough. I was just listening to an interview uh by uh with paul simon it was an old interview i mean years ago but and he was being asked about his uh his process of writing songs and when do you know it's good enough right when do you mm. you know when do you say this is it i'm not doing it and he says that's the it was the hardest thing he ever had to deal with because it was it could always be better mm -hmm. but he had to say it's good enough and i'm ready to say it's good enough and that comes from the, the acquiring that inner mental discipline to be able to change uh, what you say to yourself uh, so that you, you know, uh, there's so many countless examples of writers that, you know, held off publishing uh, out of fear because they didn't think that it was quite good enough to publish mm -hmm. and it sat in the desk for year after year. Uh, that's no way to live a life, I, I don't think, personally. I think we have to kind of step back and say, you know, uh, it's good enough. I have a few clients uh, that are doing that right now. They're really good books, but they're just not finishing the last chapter because they're psyched out that it's not going to be good enough. And right. I, I think you, you put on something in this era of 60 to 80 hour work weeks being normalized and the idea of you always have to be first, you know, uh, the tech sector uses move fast and break things. And yet it seems like all they do is break things. I think how we measure achievement and uh, like you said, talk to others and, and create groups of people where setting a goal that's an achievable, but, you know, perhaps ambitious, but still achievable mm -hmm. goal. Right. Right. And when right. you get there, stop for the day. That is, right. I think, a really important adult skill that a lot of people don't learn until they hit. It, it, it's not even happening in the 40s and 50s anymore. There's people coming down with very serious stress-related illnesses in their 20s and 30s. And that's the thing that finally makes them realize, I can't do this anymore. I have to rewrite all my paradigms. So... What are some things well, that you said, people? So go ahead. Really yeah. I think you 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 really did identify what's important here is mm -hmm. that you have to be able to. You can't put your self esteem in other people's baskets. Yeah. And you have to be able to establish achieve. You said achievable. Absolutely mm -hmm. true. You have to establish achievable goals. What I work with clients virtually every session is around. Okay, let's talk about this week. What are your goals for this week that you can accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. Not, you know, not the, uh, you know, winning the lottery or curing cancer, but something that you could, at the end of the day, say to yourself, I did that. And I did this other thing too. Mm -hmm. And if you could say that at the end of the day, and then you build upon it the next day, you are in effect validating yourself. 
you're not waiting for somebody to validate you because right. that's waiting for Godot. It's not going to happen. Uh, we're never going to get that external validation to a point that we feel <laughs> secure enough unless we begin to validate ourselves. Yeah, and that's a that's a difficult concept. The validating yourself is a difficult concept for people to get their heads around. Let me try to explain it and you tell me if I'm right. It's the difference between setting a goal of, say at work, instead of going, I'm going to get promoted to vice president in two years, which she can't control. It's, I'm going to make right. sure I check in with my direct supervisor to see what I can improve and set goals and improvement accordingly. You can control that. And the reality is that that second goal set, first of all, you can measure that. You know whether you're doing that or not. And that's self-validating. But also, I've found it's more likely to get you where you want to go than to set a goal based on external validation that doesn't have a roadmap to get there. Is that right? It, no, it's absolutely right. And yeah. it goes back to the ancient philosophy of Stoicism and understanding what we can control and we can't control. We can't control outcomes. We could only control the effort. It's the same sort of thing if I give you an analogy. When we work with parents who are trying to discipline their kids or get them to study more, brush their teeth, or whatever the case may be, uh, you can give the kid a reward for getting an A, right? Mm -hmm. Better yet, you could, you could reward the kid for the effort that they're putting into it because they can't determine whether they get an A or not, but they can determine the effort that they put into it. And that's, that's what should be rewarded, not the outcome. It's the same thing as adults that we need to apply to ourselves, that way of thinking. I had a teacher on a few weeks ago, Jeff, that said the exact same thing. That's really? awesome. He's going to be thrilled about that because we talked about grade chasing and right. how it actually discourages healthy risk because, I mean, what's the best way to get a good mark? To stay in your comfort zone and only do things you know you're good at instead of, you know, learning a new skill because everybody's terrible when they start. And I, I do think that that external validation, I, I think uh, I've done this with my team when things don't go well is exactly when you, it's good to praise when you saw someone do something right. Right. Cause when, when things are going great, everybody knows it was good. If people don't get an ideal outcome pointing out to them, okay, it didn't go your way. But you did, you know, you stood up for yourself, you set boundaries, you you expressed yourself clearly, and you were emotionally vulnerable. And all those are good things. Do that again, even if you didn't get the outcome you wanted. Yeah. Uh, going further with that, if, uh, it just reminded me of something that was said at my daughter's college graduation. Uh, you don't remember. Uh, who remembers what was said in those graduations? <laughs> I do remember this, this one line. Uh, and it stuck with me, and I use it with my patients. You may find it, and others may find it helpful. And this woman said, failure is not fatal. It is feedback. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, I think is very profound. Even from failure, we could take, we could take something of value from that uh, and, and work to do better the next time. It's not fatal. But if we treat it as fatal, then we're setting ourselves up. Yeah, especially in that transition from college to the working world where we go from a more objective uh, structure of right and wrong testing grades, numerical values to more 
qualitative feedback, you know, whether your boss likes you, whether you're a good fit with the team, you know, whether you have the interpersonal skills. And that's so jarring for people yeah. just coming out of a very, very intense educational system that puts it into their heads that, you know, you fail one test, you're not going to get into a good school. And so you're not going to get a good job. So you're going to die poor and penniless, even in families with intergenerational wealth. It stops making sense. The existential dread that is being programmed into young people that they spend their entire twenties trying to undo really takes me aback. You know, I, I, I see these, these young people whose parents are paying for their college education. Their parents are saying, don't worry if you can't get a job right away. We want you to be happy. We want you to find the right job. These, these young people in their early twenties are losing it. What would you say to someone who is putting that, you know, exceptionalist driven pressure on themselves? Well, I see it in my students. I yeah. train psychologists, clinical psychologists, and uh, I see that they value themselves based on how their patients are doing Ooh. rather than what they're doing in therapy. And, uh, you know, it's again, you, you, you're judging yourself by outcomes you can't control. Uh, and I think we have to step back from that. Uh, and that's something where we work with with them. Uh, it's it's like also like I do research as well so as a professor. And I had a student who came to me well and said to me, the fact, Dr. Nevitt, uh, will I still get my degree if I don't get the results I want oh. from the, my dissertation? Wow. Yeah, and that's what they think. If I don't get the significant result, because that's so much pressure, is so much value is placed on that. Will I get my degree? Right. right. You're absolutely right that this, you know, this is a, a generation as as it may not be the only generation of which we have socialized young people to focus only on outcomes mm -hmm. and value themselves only on outcomes. And there's a cost to be paid emotionally. I, I think as well when we prop up, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who's you know, drops out of Harvard to found Facebook. That's luck. That is not something you can set out to achieve. And people think that's the bare minimum instead of that's that's really maybe not lucky because, you know, he created a whole set of problems for himself and the world being that successful without the wisdom to handle it. And I, I find that comparative to these young psychologists in training who don't seem to recognize that patient outcomes have as much to do with the patient as the clinician, right? right. If the patient's not ready, and I, I hate that term, but it's true. Sometimes people aren't in a place where they can do the work. And that's not a moral judgment. That's just the reality. And, you know, you can hold their hand, you can support them, you can keep them stable, but they're not going to improve until they're prepared to take the steps and that's not the therapist's fault it's nobody's fault it's just sometimes how how do you handle when a student makes a mistake because when you're dealing with somebody's mental health that's i mean that's big well it's i think very, yeah. if I, may, I mean the very first when i supervise students the very first thing i say to them and they're green their second year doctoral students and they're mm. seeing their first patients and I say you know you're going to make mistakes accept it you're going to make mistakes 
you're going to learn from the mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, it's an important lesson for us all that we we are none of us perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to apply that good enough standard, not a perfect perfection standard to ourselves. Uh, and you know, we all uh, screw up uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but what is it that we take away from that? How can we learn from that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like to think of emotions as signals. When we're feeling anxious, it's a signal that there's a threat that we're facing. Mm-hmm. When we are angry, it's a signal that somebody has treated us unfairly. When we're guilty, feel guilty, it's a signal that we've stepped beyond our moral code. Mm-hmm. And uh these are built into our nervous system as signaling devices, much like pain is a signal that there's an injury in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets our attention. Uh, and and if we want to use the signal, we have to then ask ourselves, okay, you know, uh, what can I do differently the next time? Or mm-hmm. how can I cope with the situation? Uh, but continuing to worry or be anxious or guilty or angry after you get the signal and you respond to it, uh, it, it's, it it's it's worthless. It's yeah. pointless. Yeah. And if, if you fight the negative stimulus, then you're just going to keep making the same mistakes and making an even bigger mess. Um, learn from the signal. Learn what you can do with for yourself differently. Mm-hmm. And then and because that's all you can ever do. You can't erase what's happened. Use even failure as feedback. Right. Uh, Alan Moore, who's a, a comic book writer, he wrote Watchmen, V for Vendetta, From Hell, a bunch of things that have turned into movies. He recommends that would-be writers go out and read bad books. If you want to be you know, a TV or film producer, see bad movies because they got made. They're piles of junk, but mm-hmm. they got right. made. Yeah. So you yeah. don't have to be perfect to do it. And I just think that's wonderful advice. Dr. Jeff Nevin, author of the minute therapist on psychology today check him out jeff a lot of really great insights thanks very much do you have a a website or anything else that people can check you out or or is it just the blog well there's the blog and i have a a, i maintain a private practice in manhattan also through the psychology today referral service and um, people can check out my bio there are you taking patients oh sure 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 awesome in the manhattan area right uh uh, in Manhattan or by teletherapy people who they must live in this in New York State right right, right. and I'm sure my uh previous guest Jason Bradshaw will be happy to hear a lot of his things about uh academics echoed he's a chemistry teacher <laughs> high school chemistry teacher so uh, yeah I'm sure right. Jeff thanks so much my pleasure have a good day when we come back final thoughts I'll talk about how to center your self-worth so you don't end up being a smart person who does dumb things at the break on It's Not Therapy. The following program is a peer-to-peer advice show and does not diagnose mental health conditions. If you're seeking social services, please call or text 211 or go to 211.ca. We're back on It's Not Therapy. I'm still Leanna Kirsten. I'm still not a therapist and we are still talking why smart people do dumb things my first in a series of why smart people do dumb things because we've spent 40 minutes on it more than 40 minutes on it and we've barely scratched the surface 
This is, I think, something we all grapple with in a culture that prizes intelligence, that prizes, you know, a college degree. And then some of the dumbest, most awful people we'll meet in our lives are highly accredited. So if anything in this show inspires a question, comment, or suggestion, Leanna at NotTherapyShow.com or go to NotTherapyShow.com, fill out the contact form. Uh, that first thing, Leanna at NotTherapyShow.com was my email address, by the way, or NotTherapyShow on Twitter, Instagram, and threats. Okay, where to go? If you if you feel a little called out, you know, I kind of see myself in some of this stuff. You're hyper-competitive. You're very achievement-driven. You feel that if you're not being productive, you're doing something wrong. Okay, how to break this cycle? This is how I did it. First of all, you need processing time. I read this wonderful article by an author about how slow braining things is not wasted time. Taking time to just mull stuff over to sit in the backyard with a, I believe she said glass of lemonade. I prefer something stronger. You know, sit and kind of watch the world go by. Take stock that actually improves your productivity when you are in work mode. If you never stop, you never get rest and it eventually affects your performance long-term. So use that as a rationale for changing your behavior. Now about this need to be useful, need to be productive. There are many situations in life where there is no simple right or wrong answer. And what someone needs more than anything is a friendly ear not an informative mouth. Top 10 phrase, listen twice before you talk once. That is there for the urge to just be smart. No, 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 listen twice before you talk once so you don't sound dumb trying to be smart. Sounding dumb trying to be smart is easier than you think it is. We've all been there. Some of us recognize we've been there. But just being there with someone I recently was working with a client. I have a lot of artists, writers, musicians as personal clients. And, you know, I mentioned he was really struggling with the last chapter of a book. And we just started talking. And I said, you know, to me, this is what this story means to me. Not telling him what he should do just how it made me feel my reaction to his story and I just started saying whoa 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 right I want to write this down I wasn't intending to feed him dialogue for his book but we found a thread and we did it together it wasn't me helping him it wasn't me schooling him it was just me being there with him and having an emotional response an authentic supportive, emotional response to what he was doing and what he was working on. And that was more powerful than any book smarts or theory or citations out there. And when we prize our intelligence and we are valued for our intelligence in our jobs, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that really getting enthusiastic about something, really connecting to it as a human who appreciates something another human's doing, that can be more helpful, more useful, more productive, more inspiring than any intellectual knowledge or book learning out there. That is wisdom. 
And that's where we're going to land for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Question, comment, suggestion, nottherapydoshow.com. Email me directly, liana at nottherapyshow.com. Join our mailing list on the website or at Not Therapy Show on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. I'm really enjoying threads. Until next time with part two, your crazy is only a problem if it's hurting you. Talk then.